Did you feel like you had to completely redefine your identity once you stopped drinking? This seems to be a really common occurrence when people remove alcohol from their lives. It's come up many times in conversation on this podcast, so we decided that we'd dedicate an episode to what it means to lose our identity and what we've done to find it. Welcome to Through the Glass Recovery Podcast, where we believe that connection is the opposite of addiction, vulnerability is the antidote to shame, and that recovery isn't just rewarding, but it's also a lot of fun. We're your hosts, Julie and Steve. Listen as we get together with friends to shed light on the hard things, talk about the other side of addiction, and how we create a life so full there's no space left for alcohol. Before we get started, We just want to make sure that y'all know that if there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed in an episode, you can send us an email at throughtheglassrecovery at gmail.com or visit the website and send us an email through there. We'd love to create content based on what you want to hear. So let us know. So we have the coolest group of guests today. I am really excited about this. I feel like it's going to be an amazing conversation. I am going to have everybody go ahead and do introductions first. And I'm going to start with Andrew. How are you today? I'm doing really good, Julie. Um, Thank you for having me on, first of all. And then um, I'll give you just like a, a brief intro of who I am. Yeah. So uh, I I work for uh, Palm Beach Recovery Centers. It's a detox in uh, South Florida. I've been sober for two years and a month, two years, a month and five days. I'm really proud of that fact because I spent so much time going in and out and uh, my job's to be as helpful as possible. Dang. That's how I look today. Two years, a month and five days. So he would have been <laughs> March 10th, That's 2021 on March 14th, 2021. <laughs> I'm like nice. four. Da- I'm four days after you. I have to oh, go cool. back on Cash App to to get the exact date I was sober. I didn't really expect to stay sober this long. <laughs> That's amazing. That's, That's really amazing. cool. That's a wonderful story, and we're really proud of you because it is so hard to get out of that cycle. So good job, and thank you so much for everything you do for the sober community. Mm-hmm. And next, we're going to go with Jean. Hi, hi. I'm Jean. I also have a March sober birthday, March 20th. Oh, to think wow. About that. <laughs> uh, but for me, it was 12 years in March. Feels like about five minutes sometimes. I feel like the first couple weeks felt like an eternity. And since then, the time has just flown by. It's it's odd almost how fast time goes. I uh, am recovering out loud, so I use my last name when I talk about recovery. So Jean McCarthy, if people have heard me before, it would be probably from the Bubble Hour podcast. And I've also launched a new podcast called Tiny Bubbles, which is like a short, quick version of the Bubble Hour. Obviously, it's not an hour. (laughs) That's like the non-hour version of the Bubble Hour. And I also got sober by writing a blog and uh, shed my anonymity over the years. So I started blogging anonymously as Unpickled and eventually shed anonymity and published a couple books. And yeah, so I write about it, I talk about it, and I like to jump in and help out where I can because I think podcasts really helped me in the early days. And I really appreciate anyone who's willing to put the voice out there because it helps so much when you're looking for answers. So thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Really does. And I'm going to gush really quick. So when I very first got sober, the first like sober literature that I ever read was your blog. I don't know if a blog is actually literature, but oh, yes, definitely literature. (laughs) I found unpickled, I think, on my second or third day of sobriety. And there were days that I would just be laying there almost in tears, not sure how I was going to get through the rest of the day. And I would just read your posts over and over because it was the first time that I didn't feel alone. So it is an absolute honor to actually meet you. And I am so grateful that you shared everything that you did in that blog because it had a huge effect on me and my recovery. So thank you for being here. (laughs) And last but not least, we have Steph's. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm Steph. Some of you may know me from my Instagram handle, which is this is Steph Sober. And I am 
10 days, 11 days, sorry, 11 days away from being 16 months sober. I did not get sober in March, so I'm not part of that. But <laughs> I did get sober the day after Christmas, so that's a big feat. Mm -hmm. A really hard time to get sober. But um, yeah, I, I host two sober podcasts now. I started my first one, This Is Stuff Sober, back in August of last year as a way to give back to the sober community because also I found sober podcasting this huge outlet for me and something that really just kept pounding that narrative in my head. I needed that in the beginning, like you wouldn't believe. Like I needed to know that alcohol was bad and that sobriety was good like and so it was my way of giving back and then I just recently teamed up with Kate which you guys have had on your podcast yep. her handle on Instagram which is how a lot of people know her is walking the straight line and her and I just teamed up and now we do a podcast together called the sober effect so that's we're on episode six and it's been going really well so it's just another outlet but now I just feel like so much sobriety stuff on my plate and I love it. And it's just like, it's so fun. And so I, I want to thank you guys for having me on because um, I think because I host two podcasts, people just don't ask me very often to come on. And I was like thrilled when you guys reached out. I'm like, yes, I would love to. So thank you. Amazing. So cool. Yeah. You know, podcasting is an amazing thing because it really helps hold us accountable and, yeah. and support our own recovery in addition to sharing with the rest of the community. So two podcasts is a lot. I know how much one podcast is for us. Yeah. And so thank you for taking the time to be here and thank you for all that you do. So for our topic today, over the course of the past 35 episodes that we have recorded, we've heard so many people say they quit drinking and they realized they didn't even know who they were. So I thought that would make a great topic for today. How did you start figuring out your identity once alcohol no longer played a central role in that? What was hard and what have you learned? And if there's anything you're still struggling with, we would love to hear about that too. Anybody is welcome to start. I'll go, for, I'll go first. I feel like I just spoke, but I'll go first. Great. That's um, awesome. So for me, I love this subject because it is actually something I've really been thinking about a lot lately. I mean, I thought about it obviously right away because as you get sober, you learn very quickly how much you were depending on alcohol to kind of, for me, it was like putting on a mask. I started drinking at 14. And the reason I started drinking at 14 was because I wanted to fit in with the cool kids. And it was a way to make me, I'm very introverted. So it made me more extroverted. It made me feel cool. It helped me like be someone I really wasn't. And it just morphed, you know, as the years went on. And I just continued to use that to essentially people please, to help other people feel comfortable. And as an adult, you know, then it became mommy wine culture, right? Like I wanted to drink to fit in with those groups of women. And when I got sober, I actually had a very profound moment or realization in the shower one day. I was about four months sober where it just hit me that that person was gone, like that version of me, because I tried to hold on to her for a really long time. Um, even when I first got sober, I remember telling like my my drinking friends, oh, it's fine. Like I'll, I'm going to get sober, but don't feel like you can't drink around me. Like it'll be fine. Like I, can, I cannot drink and you guys can drink and nothing's going to change. And I finally got to a point because as you get sober, you start really embracing who you are and at least for me, like I started unraveling beliefs and things that I let alcohol fuel, like beliefs that really weren't mine, beliefs that society mm -hmm. created, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so I had this profound moment in the shower where I just realized I can't keep holding on to her. I can't keep trying. It's like, you know, one, one foot was over here and one foot was over there and I was in full split. And I was like, I can't, I have to let go. And I have to let go of her. And I cried and cried and sobbed. And like grieved her like a loss. Yeah. But then, you know, I also had to thank her because she's the one who got me sober. She's the one that had to waken up to the fact that like she was, you know, she was fake. She wasn't real. It wasn't, it wasn't in alignment. And it, it was a whole process, but it, 
it's it was a beautiful process because part of my sobriety that I always talk about is feeling it all because I had a lot of anxiety. I suffered for 17 years and found out when I got sober that it was just because I was such a heavy drinker that the anxiety went away when the alcohol did. And so there was a lot of new coping skills that had to be developed because I never learned anything different starting at 14. That was just what I did. And so, yeah, I think to answer the question of what is still hard, um, what's still hard is that people pleasing is still falling in back into that pattern of doing things to keep other people comfortable. You know what I mean? Like that was the whole point of my drinking was because the minute I quit drinking, it made those people very uncomfortable. You know, they'd be like, wait, you're going to quit drinking? Like, are you mean forever? You know, and I that made me like it made me feel bad. Right. Because, oh, my gosh, I made them feel bad. So I still deal with that from time to time. If that all makes if anyone resonates with that, I don't know. But it is a very big part of my sober journey for sure. Oh, I want to jump in because I've got the same but different thing going on. <laughs> so I have to say that I I didn't drink like alcohol wasn't part of my identity externally so much. I was I think I drank to cope with the weight of the disconnect between the me that I presented to the world as a as a woman in business being like really tough and really assertive and that's not actually me at all but feeling like I had to be this way. And so I would come home and drink at night to kind of cope with the discomfort of feeling like the real me was exhausted by trying to be this version of me that I put out. And it wasn't that it was a fake version of me. It was like, it was kind of a heightened version of my skills. And it was just a lot to try to do that all the time. And I started drinking primarily because I would, when I went to bed at night, I would lay there and think about all the things I did that day where I almost let it slip, like where someone almost saw the real me or maybe where I didn't quite live up to the version of me that I wanted to be. And I would just berate myself and I would like dissect the day and, or I would, if that failed, I would also often like think back to things from like five years ago, five, 10 years ago. Oh, that time, like I spanked my toddler and, you know, he's he was a teenager by then, but I would still feel bad about. So I would just berate myself and I would lay awake for hours and and just ruminate and then cry. And then I then I'd get into worrying about the next day because, oh, God, now I'm going to be tired tomorrow and I'm going to and I'm going to look awful. So having a good snort of wine before bed helped me go to sleep before all that started. And as I went through my 30s and into my 40s, I needed more and more and more for that to work. And it started earlier and earlier in the day. And then I almost started pretending it was part of my identity of being like a classy wine drinking lady because I actually needed it a lot, but I never wanted people to see me drunk because that didn't fit with the original brand that I was <laughs> trying to protect. So I had to hide it. And it, and then I had two problems because now I was also not this person I was pretending to be. And I was coping with the extra stress of trying to manage my drinking problem and hide my drinking problem and hate myself for having a drinking problem. It was like so circular and exhausting and so much work. So when I did quit, it was hard in a way because I thought, how am I going to cope without alcohol? It never occurred to me to, to be more authentic. Like that wasn't an option. And it never occurred to me to think, well, who am I really and what do I really want to be like? But at some point over the years, I started like absorbing the message of like, to build a life that I didn't need to numb from mm -hmm. and realizing that that would come from being more authentic. So the first thing I did was I started calling anxiety, anxiety. I used to always call it stress because I had this, I want to say belief, but it was more like a bumper sticker that like stress is for strong people and anxiety is for weak people and I'm strong. So I have stress, but I really realized that was just a smoke screen for myself. And so I was started calling anxiety what it was. And then as years went on, I started working on what was behind the anxiety. So it's almost like this 
every few years, like another layer peels off and I go a little bit deeper and I learn something more about myself. And I was really afraid that the anxiety had some mysterious source in childhood trauma and I was going to need to like go through all this, I don't know, like ayahuasca like stuff to uncover trauma. And you know what? It turned out it was really none of that at all. Really, it was more had to do with like shame. And what I'm realizing now is like I have probably some pretty mild forms of ADHD that my kids have and that kind of thing where I just felt so much shame about being forgetful or distracted. I was always like so on myself to be on task, to be good girl and be likable and people pleasing and all of that. I just was riding my own butt all the time. And to now finally be able to say like, oh, actually this is just how my brain works. And if I have to go back downstairs six times for the same cup of coffee or if I lose my iPhone five times a day, that's not me being dumb. You know, I mean, just labels like I would have all these labels and I would talk to myself and the third person like, oh, Gene. Now I'm just at a point where I can say like, oh, this is how this works for me. And guess I'm going to get my steps in walking around the house looking for all the things I forget. <laughs> it's a lot gentler. That's for sure. That's really cool. The gentler. That is hard. I know, like Stephanie was saying, you started drinking when you were 14. And I think I... I didn't really start drinking heavily until my 20s, but I definitely was dabbling in alcohol, I'm a little bit in drugs, and all I wanted was to fit in and belong somewhere. And we moved a lot. And those really formative, like 13, 14, 15, 16 year old, you know, that that period where I think most kids, that's where you're really supposed to start coming up with your own identity. You're supposed to start gaining that sense of self and, and understanding your place in the world. And I just never did that. Between bouncing around between all these different friend groups and all these different schools and just desperately trying to be liked and to fit in and to belong, I never had any idea who I was to begin with. So then people talk about, you know, I want to go, I want to quit drinking and go back to who I used to be. I don't even know who I used to be. There's, it's just this giant empty void, like all of these masks and, you know, pseudo versions of myself. So I feel like for me, recovery has just been this major discovery process, like feeling my way through every experience and every feeling and everything that I'm faced with. And then there's just this constant question of what do I really believe here? What is really important to me here? What do I enjoy? What do I not enjoy? How do I actually feel? And allowing that is terrifying. Like Jean, you were talking about that the whole idea of authenticity. And when I really was starting to struggle with myself, I started reading a lot of Brene Brown. We talk about her on almost every episode here. I know I'm sure everybody's probably familiar with her. And, And like you were saying, Jean, the shame. And I started recognizing all the shame that I was carrying and like how that was affecting who I was and who I was trying to be. And I remember her talking about, you know, dealing with your shame and and starting to understand yourself. And then she's talking about connection. And then she was like vulnerability. It was like, okay, I'm good with all of that. But that vulnerability thing, like that's not going to work for me. (laughs) Thanks though. Um, (laughs) Like, no, no, I'll I'll work on authenticity. I'll try to be myself. The vulnerability is just going to, that's going to have to stay over there because I can't do that. You can't have one without the other. And you can't. So I tried so hard for so long to to figure out who I was, but it turns out you have to actually let people see the real you. And that was terrifying for me. That's been like the foundation of my recovery is just finding the courage to let myself be seen like I really am, not like everybody wants me to be or like I think they want me to be. If I knew that uh, recovery was going to be a process of becoming the best version of myself and finding out what stopped me from becoming the best version of myself, instead of like this this scary, this scary, I'm never going to be able to drink or have fun again, I think I would have did it a lot sooner. And everything that that you guys are talking about, right? I've I've floated around uh, like a leaf in the wind. And this person that I thought I was supposed to be was uh, based in conversations that I had at the dinner table with my parents. 
and you have to become a doctor and you have to mm-hmm. drive a BMW and uh, commercials on TV and just different movies. You have to have the hottest girlfriend. And, um, you know, when you try to live up to these false expectations and this false sense of self, just like you guys talked about, you're putting on these different masks and it goes against your conscience. And when you're going against your conscience for a really long time, you just can't look yourself in the mirror. And um, I remember, you know, the, the multiple attempts that I got sober, I didn't know that I was on a mission to become that best version of myself. I had no idea what I was doing. So I'd end up in these sober livings and it was like, what are we going to do? Let's go to the casino. Let's download Tinder. Let's download Bumble, right? And and we're we're literally just going down that same road, and it just ends up me hating myself. The the person this is this is what I found um recently, like very recently, as far as you know what what recovery and what AA and uh, what God has taught me. I have this situational purpose. And in every situation that I am, it, it's my responsibility to be the best version of myself. And the more that I can do that, the the more I can lay my my head down on my pillow at night and be okay with myself. And um, I love what you guys are saying too. It just it's just like the same story in different words, you know. Yeah, I, I'm listening to all of you, but Steph, when you were talking about the like what's on the other side of that, I I, I wrote about that part. Like I remember, it's, it was like it's like for me, it was it was letting go of the rung where I knew what was going to happen and what I had control over and what I didn't have control over, and it was my freaking shield. And as soon as I let go of that, I had to trust that there was another rung on the other side to grab. I feel you 100% because it was all tears. It was just like, you know what? I'm going to start to trust this part because I can't go back there. Right. You're talking about that, and this is the image that's in my head, right? Like, it's just, you got to trust the rest of your life with this. And that's like what I'm going to believe. And I have no idea what it is because I have no idea who I am, really. Right? Yeah. And my my vision, you want to hear what my vision was? Yeah. My vision was, because mine was also fueled with anxiety, too. Mine was, I'm jumping out of a burning airplane, mm-hmm. hoping the parachute's going to open. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like for me. Because yeah. I knew I couldn't stay on that no more. It's It was going to kill me. Yeah. But I didn't know what was going to happen when I jumped. So yeah. same type of, like, I'm such a... I love that. I love yours, but that's how I think of things too. Like I'm very visual. Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. a it's a picture. It's got so much freaking emotion just wrapped right in it. Yeah. So like once you let go, I think once I let go, it became a whole bunch of trial and error, because there's a whole there was a whole bunch of like I don't know, and and I I've got to be really I had to be try and be self-aware. I've never been self-aware before. I don't know what self-reflection is. I don't know what any of that is. I'm looking for the reflection outside of me to tell me that I'm okay. And then that would determine what I liked. Yeah. And I still needed that. I needed it when it was my decision. I needed it because I I still didn't trust myself. Right? But if I got to make the decision and I I got to say, you know what, this is what I like. And then I got to feel that out. So the trial and error is, do I actually like this? And one of the hardest questions for me is like, I can, I, I can tell you right now, a lot of the things that I don't like, because those are easy, but the things that I do like, that list is still hard to find. It is still hard to find. I, I sat down in February with Julie and we knitted. She taught me how to knit, right? Because a lot of these things are filled with my own bias and judgment. A guy doesn't knit. What the heck am I doing even trying this, right? Like a, a bath. I love my baths. But a guy doesn't knit. What the hell am I doing even trying this? But I, I mean, why not? Just because it's it's not a common thing? Take away all of my judgment and actually give it a try and and see if I like it, like anything else. And you know what? Outside of the frustration of the fact that I sucked and I was horrible at it, there was some sort of therapeutic nature to it. Like I did, I, I've walked through Walmart 
going grocery shopping and I've seen yarn and I've seen the things and I've thought a couple of times, you know what? I kind of want to buy that. And I, and then I ignore that little inner voice, whether it's, I don't have the time or that little inner voice says that every, every once in a while, that's me telling myself, I need to give that a try again, because I actually enjoyed that. There was a part of that, that I actually enjoyed. So I think inside of this discovery is a whole bunch of, I'm going to suck at stuff because I never tried anything for me. I tried a lot of things for a lot of outside validation. And I've never tried anything for like this inside validation. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. Maybe I need to go and pick that yarn up and, and, and knit a sock or a hat or whatever that is to validate whether I actually like that or not, because I still have an innate curiosity about it. I fully support that. I think you should go buy some yarn, <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> it's true, though. Like we sat down here before and I'm like, I'm writing notes and I'm going, this is one. this is the experience that came up for me because... It is literally, who am I? What do I like? I like hiking. I love hiking. I never got outside. It wasn't something that I did. I knew I loved the outdoors, but I didn't know that, you know, when I walked through a, a set of pines that I would really enjoy that smell. And then that when I walked through, you know, the whole scenery changes that I, my jaw would just drop. And I, it would be something that I took in so much, like finding the joy in a lot of little things that I just couldn't find before started with listening to myself, like actually listening to that inner voice that said, you know what? That doesn't feel right. Easter, this, I'm, I just don't, it's not a thing for me. And it's always been a struggle because it's always a thing for everyone else. And, and this year, I was allowed to have Easter just to be not a thing, and it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. My kids were with my my ex-wife, and Easter is a thing for her. And I was like, great. Have the kids. Enjoy yourself and do your thing. Have Easter. Have fun. It's a thing for you. It's not a thing for me. Fantastic. And it was my first Easter where I could just go... Cool. I don't mind working. <laughs> See, I feel like what you're describing is like classic codependency, where we define ourselves as others see us. And that was a really huge, explosive lesson for me in early recovery. I didn't even know I was doing it. And I thought it was good because the world loves it when you shape shift and become what everyone else wants you to be and you get awards and you get recognized and you get moved up the ladder and all those things so then it's really confusing because you think oh well but if i stop using that as a tool all of my my whole system of success is going to fall apart but it and then it goes like yeah right it like, goes against your very nature right yeah You're yeah just pushing against the your own internal grain and it's like it's so scary. It keeps on stretching. Yeah. And then I think that in realizing that, what I realized about myself was that I didn't not only know who I was, I just didn't even exist to myself. Mm -hmm. So I realized that there was a lot of things I had done in my life that I felt like if nobody saw me do it, it didn't happen. You know, like eating behaviors or I don't know, just like personal weird things we do, you know. And I felt like it didn't exist if nobody saw it because I was literally nobody. But I would have had so much shame if a stranger or probably even my dog had witnessed it because then it became real the moment someone else saw it. So a big part of recovery wasn't just finding out who I am. It was actually learning to acknowledge that I exist and value my own opinion and my own awareness gosh i like i feel sad in my body as i tell you that that i went for so many years without like existing to myself yeah i mean that really resonates with me too because i mean even when you said earlier gene about like the the layers you know here's another visualization but um i just remember at one point just feeling like i was peeling back an onion because there was tears every time you know and as you peel open an onion you just cry i mean every time i discovered 
another part of me that I abandon. Yeah. I mean, you have to go like I I would literally meditate and go back to whoever I was at that time, whether I was a young girl, a teenager or whatever, in whatever situation where I abandoned myself or did something against what I truly knew was not in alignment with me, I would go back to her and I would like tell her what she needed to hear and tell her she's safe and tell her she's okay. And it's very deep work, but it is so powerful. And all I can say is the best way to figure out what you like and what you don't like or what you may be interested in is to question everything. Question everything you do with a why, you know? Give it a try. Yeah. Why do I do this or why do I want to do this? And if it has nothing to do with you and it has everything to do with the outside, there's your answer. Because I realized really quickly that there were a lot of things I did that made zero sense to me on why I did it. Zero sense to me. Like when I finally sat down, I was like, well, why do you do that? And it would all come back to it had had nothing to do with my beliefs. It was societies, my parents, my husband, my daughter, like whatever, you know, like we just get wrapped up in, in people pleasing and keeping everyone like like Jean was saying, like being who everyone needed you to be. Yeah, that I lived for everybody else's expectations. And my parents had a lot of expectations of me. My husband had expectations. Like you said, there were expectations coming at me from all directions. I mean, I remember when my kids were younger, I went to the grocery store and I homeschooled them. And the lady at the cash register wanted to know why they weren't in school and had expectations about like she was asking my kids to answer math questions. Like even she had expectations about me. And I lived my life to try to meet all of these expectations. I could like feel them crushing me. It never, ever occurred to me to ask myself what my own expectations are. And the minute I just stopped and I asked myself, what is my expectation of myself as a mom? What is my expectation of myself as a wife? What is my expectation of myself in this social situation? What do I actually expect myself to be? Because a lot, and and if nobody actually articulated their expectations to me, I would make them up mm-hmm. and they yeah. were so much higher and so much more impossible to ever meet. But if no one told me what was expected, that I would just guess. And so I was, I was never good enough. And once I actually asked myself, what are my, my real expectations of myself? Those were things I could actually accomplish. Those were things that meant something to me. And it started letting me get a little bit more in touch with what I actually valued which was just a completely foreign concept to me up until I stopped drinking. Like up until I was 39 years old, I lived for everybody else's expectations, which is really sad. And I like what you said about the expectations that I have for myself, Julie. You know, as we were talking about anxiety before, a lot of times when I, when I start defining the expectations that I have for myself and I know that they're there and I don't do them, I start feeling that uh, feeling in my stomach that just like rattles around and it's like, Hey, you need to be doing this. And I'll, <laughs> you know, Steve, when you're talking about the yarn, I know this is a crazy place for my head to go, but, um, you, you're like, <laughs> you're talking about how you, you like want to do this, but you don't want to do it. I'm like, what? I don't know why I thought about this, but I was thinking about how I, I don't want to go see my parents. But when I go see my parents, I'm going to feel a lot better, right? <laughs> and I know that if I if I just think about it as like, what can I bring to that? Um, because they've done so much for me, that that anxiety in my stomach will go away. And a lot of times, the the way that the expectations that I have on myself and the way I want to be defined, right? The this ideal that I want to live up to is doing things that I don't want to do, and I feel it in my gut, just like you were talking about, Julie. Like the these expects expectations of who I might be. Yeah. Um, I don't know why my mind went there when you were talking about yarn. I also thought about my grandma too. I was like, I wish I could go hiking with my grandma. No, no, everything that's king. It's funny. It's funny. Okay. When, it's funny what comes up because it's the, and those things that come up when other people talk, they're important to you. So you're going to have to revisit that because anything that, that, that crops up, it's even when anytime I'm talking to anyone and, and I have one of those, 
my own little story that pops up within someone else's story. I'm like, I that's something worth investigating because there's something authentic in that. Anytime any, any anything pops up like that, there's there's like the, there's a piece of me that uh, that that comes up there that I get to examine and rediscover. It's like doing laundry. Like I've got all of this dirty, dirty, dirty laundry. It's all the clothes that I like. There's they're there. I need to clean them. I need to take a look at them, and I need to decide if they still fit. Yeah. If that's something that I want, if that's something that that is, I have literally done that with my clothes, because outside of what was authentic to actually me, I need to be authentic to my own clothing, because I got rid of a whole bunch of stuff that I wore that I didn't really like. It came down to like right down to the nitty gritty right? My t-shirts, my sweaters, my socks, like all of that stuff. It turned into, because all a lot of that, even that small stuff was a, a reminder of who I was. And it's not like I was getting, uh, getting rid of it because I didn't want to see it. It's because it didn't serve me anymore. And I think that was the purpose that, uh, that, that is kind of like what Stephanie was saying. Does this serve me? And if it doesn't, if it doesn't serve any purpose, if it doesn't bring me joy, the Marie Kondo thing, what is the point of having it? It doesn't serve any purpose other than to make my life messier or whatever that may be. And, and I think discerning if if it serves you in a way of validation right. versus serves you in your purpose, right? That's the trick. That is the so, trick. The alcoholism trick, right? Right. And it's the trial and error and it's the trick for codependency. It's the trick for all of that stuff. And inside of that is a whole bunch of like, you know, I'm going to make mistakes. There is no perfection in this game at all, in this business. There is none of it. Throw that right out the door. Life is going to get messy. I'm going to make a lot of wrong decisions about myself and when I make those wrong decisions, that's where the magic happens. That's when I figure out what I actually like and what I don't. That admitting those mistakes, admitting yeah. those flaws, it, like that was that was my struggle with authenticity and vulnerability. Like I will show you everything perfect about me. You should look at my Facebook from when I was still drinking. My life was amazing. But God forbid anybody see my mistakes or my flaws or anything I didn't like about myself. And just learning how to face those and accept those and own my mistakes and you know admit my character flaws there that's a huge part of i think learning our identity and accepting our identity accepting ourselves as we are like there was so much self-loathing in there if i if anybody found out about those little things that i didn't like about myself then i would i would just eat on myself it was so awful and so ugly and like that internal dialogue about you know you're so stupid and you're all it was terrible and just to be able to admit your mistakes and your flaws and say I'm still okay this is an opportunity to grow but this is who I am right now there's a real beauty and strength in that part of finding our identity I think I had a double standard because I could talk a really good game for everyone else. Like I would tell my kids, it's fine to be imperfect or, you know, and a friend would come and talk about her struggles and I could be so accepting and kind and loving and really mean it for other people. But when it came to me, no way, man, that, that did not apply. Like I felt like I had to overcompensate because other people were allowed to be imperfect because they were somehow of more value, right? Mm -hmm. And I I was thinking this morning about, I remember being like young, like seven, eight years old and teachers and friends saying, you're so hard on yourself. Oh, don't be so hard on yourself, which is a weird thing to say to a little kid, but I don't know. Anyway, I must, I must've earned it because it was something I heard a lot. But I re also remember thinking, how can I not be like, I need to be hard on myself. I, if I'm not hard on myself, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm, you know, like I just remember thinking, okay, I guess 
instead of instead of internalizing that as, oh, thanks for the tip, I'll stop being hard on myself. I thought, oh, I've got to be less obvious about how hard I am on myself so people don't notice. So they think this is just me, my performance level is just my normal. And yeah, I felt like everyone else had more value, so they were allowed to be imperfect, but I was not. That's still that that's a that goes back a long ways, I think. And it it's it takes a long time to undo that kind of core belief about ourselves. And it's not easy. I mean, I think if I'm not careful, I think I, I backslide a lot in that thinking. It takes a long time to learn how to say no. I mean, the, you, you hear that every once in a while or see it on social media. Like no is a complete sentence. Yeah. That is you standing up for yourself and that is saying that I am worth it. Like that's what that says in any aspect. As long as that's true to, true to yourself and saying, you know, I'm saying no for that reason, it's pretty powerful. It's so easy to slide back into all of that, though. Like you were saying, Jean, like I have worked really hard to develop a sense of self-worth that comes from inside instead of always coming from outside. But it does not take a lot for me to fall back into all of that negative thinking. And then I have to dig myself right back out of it. And I recognize it now, which at least I recognize it. I see that it needs to be done, but it's a, it's a constant process. I think that is, that is one of our, our core values or, or core beliefs about ourselves that, you know, we develop, like you said, really young. I mean, I remember I, I was literally a performer. Like my, I, I was a dancer and I was on stage when I was like six years old. And that's where I got all of my worth. And it, I don't know if that ever completely gets undone or if we just make ourselves really aware of it so that we can constantly refute it. Like, I, I don't know what that looks like. I, I have a lot of years ahead of me in this in this game, but it's uh, it's definitely not just a, a one and done for me. A lot of the times when I'm um, overcompensating or when uh, pride and ego come out, I, I really want to accomplish something or um, I'm scared. Maybe somebody's like triggered me in, in some type of way, or maybe I feel shameful, or maybe I'm going off of my old constitution again. And I feel like when I overcompensate and when, when that pride and when that ego comes out, I'm like drawing off this false sense of power. And the paradox is the, the, the most powerful version of myself is that authentic self. And it takes time to trust that, right? It, ta it takes a long time to trust that. And at the beginning, um, so like I said before, I'm two years sober and, I, and I'm still learning how to trust that. I'm always constantly growing and falling back into my old ways. And it's very easy for me to, for my subconscious without me even knowing it, right? To become an egotistical asshole that knows everything, right? But it's that awareness of like, hey, you you've learned this through through faith, through trust that if you just bring out that that loving self, that authentic self, that that paradox comes into play, then you can actually be the best version of yourself and draw into that power. I do think though we have to remember our authentic self doesn't necessarily mean perfection, right? Right. Like our authentic self still has room to grow and capacity to grow, and. I think that was where I had to really cut myself some slack in terms of realizing, oh, my authentic self can is kind of a jerk sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I authentically need to improve that. But <laughs> I, I really kind of thought that that was another way of, it was almost like another false self that I, like an ideal that I held up for myself. So even just getting really grounded on what that authentic self is, I think is, is good. And it's like, you're right. It is so helpful. It is our best version of ourself at that moment, but it can also become a better version of ourself as we spend more time in that place and become really integrated. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever talked much about the parts of self, but how, you know, the idea that we sort of have different masks for different needs. So when we're with our family, we might be one way. When we're with our kids or other family members, we might be a little bit more caregiving. 
And so we kind of pull up aspects of ourselves. And I think sometimes we get stuck in the wrong one. Like I was stuck in my like doer self, my manager self and stuff. You were stuck in your fun self. It's not that that was entirely fake. It just, it wasn't, it was an aspect of your personality. But when we kind of, when we're in our authentic self, we're kind of the manager that's choosing what, what part of ourself to use in that moment or to consult. And, and then we get stronger and stronger at doing that, more intentional in how we act. And that's, I guess it's scary in a way too, though, because then that's the vulnerability is like, well, what if people don't like my authentic self? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's terrifying. It is terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I was wired that way for a really long time. Like I, I had a moment where I like broke down and cried not too long ago because of a couple experiences at work that just, it just brought me right back to memories of when I first started abandoning myself. Like I first started lying to friends, to friends to just try and be liked and fit in. And like that memory came, came back and I was like, wow, I have been doing this for a really goddamn long time. And so to try and unwire that, to try and like, how many plugs, how many extension cords do I have that tell me that this is the right way to do it? And it's like, okay, I got to unplug this one. Like it doesn't need power anymore, but I got to figure out what to plug it into. And I, like, I got to find a different light bulb, but at least I unplugged the one that I don't, yeah, I, I don't need that one to work. That That is a lesson and I'm good with that lesson. And I'm glad I cried about it. I'm glad I figured it out. At least there's that piece now that I... Uh, you know, I, I plugged it into the new spot. Woo! I'm like, I'm winning. That's the progress. Yeah. Yeah. And what Julie was saying, because I related to it and it kind of leads up to what I'm about to say. I was a dancer too growing up. And there's, I did competitive dance. I'm guessing, did you do competitions and stuff too when you were younger? Not until high school. Okay. So there was a lot of perfectionism that came with that, right? Like you had to be on. And I mean, I just remember practices where like if we couldn't do the routine completely perfect, it was like a punishment, right? Nope, we're starting over. We're going to we're going to be here until we do it perfect. And at a young age when that's ingrained in you, it just seeps into every area of your life. So perfectionism is another thing that I I struggle with. And what I've had to learn to do is to redefine success and to redefine failure. Because for me, failure meant we quit and we don't try again. Failure always meant we're done. No matter no matter what, like we were done. And I have, through my adult life, tried so many different careers and things. And just because I'd have one little slip up or whatever, I would just quit. Because I'm like, nope, I can't do it. So I'm done. And then success too. It's just looking at what does success mean to you? Who cares what? your coworker thinks is success. Who cares if they think they need to, you know, hit a bonus or make this amount? Is that really what makes you happy? Is that what really fills your soul? Like what is success to you? And I think success is a really tricky one in society. It seeps into everything as well. It seeps into social media, you know, because you can start getting hung up in the follows and comments and likes and all of that. It's everywhere. There's measurements everywhere and yep. and you've got to start because that's just when you're someone who is in sobriety, you sometimes just kind of like morph into something else to like we we're talking about validate you or to make you feel good, to feel that, to give you that dopamine. So yeah, it's, it's, it's messy. It can get really messy. Yeah. A close friend of mine is, uh, he so you and me stephanie we're right around um the same sobriety time right and um same with steve and um a friend of mine just uh relapsed in between two and three years and i was uh chairing at a meeting last night and i was saying like i could see how you can get complacent in between two to three years of sobriety because of those measurements right everything goes really well for for a good amount of time and um, just me personally, right? Like I'm doing a lot of service work. I'm, for lack of better words, I rest on my laurels. And then it becomes how much money can I make? How well can I do at my job, right? Um, what are these things that I'm going to buy? 
and then that the the constitution that I changed to a spiritual constitution is now switched back <laughs> to, to the, the conversation I had with my parents. And I was like, damn, I could see how this happens in between two to three years. But just so you guys know, I've been to three meetings in a row. And I'm <laughs> the really cool thing is, and I've and I've had this experience now in the past couple of days. I've seen and I've got to talk to and now Gene was 12 years, and you see that it's still a journey and that it's not a destination. And this is this is this is what keeps getting uh reinforced with me. Like Gene, that's what you're doing for me today. It's really awesome. I love that because I I, I tell myself that all the time, right? It is a journey. There is no destination here. And Gene's talking like, I'm still struggling with this and I still have this. It's like, I'm going to just keep trying to figure myself out because I'm also going to evolve. So the things that I like today, I might not like in three years from now. And that's okay if I decide that I don't like knitting anymore or whatever that may be, right? Like that's, it's just okay. Like I don't have to hold on to it. Like it is a piece of me that I need to show around anymore. It's a piece of me that doesn't do me any good anymore. I can put it away. I doesn't, it doesn't have to. So I'm going to wrap this up guys. We, this was fantastic. You guys were all really, really great. Uh, I really liked Andrew when you said, uh, recovery, the process of becoming the best version of ourselves. Like, I think when we quit, we give ourselves that best opportunity and that best version of ourselves changes throughout the process of our sobriety. It's not, I am not who I was six months ago, and that's okay. I don't have to hold on to that. We hid behind a lot of masks. We talked about the people pleasing, the shame, and all of that is just a different form of self-abandon. One of the things that I thought of is, how often do you trust your heart now? Like, I think we learn through this experience that trusting our gut is a good thing. And, you know, asking yourself the question, what are my expectations for myself? They can be realistic. And we have the self-awareness now to try and make those realistic expectations and not crazy ones like they were before. Gene, you mentioned parts of self. I thought that was really, really cool. When you mentioned that, I thought about those exaggeration parts of exaggerated parts of self where now you get to make that decision of, you know what, I'm, I don't, I don't need to be this person or this version here anymore. And, uh, answer your whys. What are those? Stephanie, you mentioned that. Andrew, thank you. Jean, thank you. Stephanie, thank you for making the time today and sharing your thoughts and experiences with us. I really, really appreciate you guys. Thank you guys. That was awesome. Thank you. It was fun. It was good to meet everyone. (laughs) Thanks also to our listeners for sharing this space with us. Please, if this episode hit home for you, consider sharing it with a friend that might also enjoy listening. And if you haven't already, like, subscribe, follow, so that you don't miss next week's episode. We've gathered an awesome group of folks to talk about figuring out what to do when we get stuck in the dark those dark seasons of life where we just can't seem to see the other side. See you next week.